This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together and to study your word and to study your work in, in history and how you care for your people. Lord, I ask that you would be with us here now. Please let me to, help me to speak the words that you would have me to speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just a, a little bit of a recap. Um, this presentation is definitely uh, the second part of the presentation I gave earlier. Um, but just a recap. Uh, we talked a little bit about the pagan Roman system and how that, that system was based upon uh, public religion. It was based upon the system of the Pontifex Maximus. And the Pontifex Maximus' job was to see to it that everyone worshipped their gods because if all of the gods were worshipped, then the gods would be happy. And if the gods are happy, then the empire would prosper. Um, this was a system that was taken over by the emperors because it's not good to have competition between um, the church and the state. So the emperors took that title and they ruled, um, they ruled the religious affairs um, through, through that religious system. Um, when the empire failed... Uh, the Bishop of Rome took up that title. Um, in the, I guess I, I left a little piece out there that we talked about, and that is the fact that when Constantine converted, he was the Pontifex Maximus, and he maintained those prerogatives and controlled the church through that. And then the Bishop of Rome takes that up and models his activity uh, basically on Constantine's. Um, and then the other thing that we saw was the Magna Carta, and basically, through all of what was going on with Magna Carta, you can see how the Pope used all kinds of political intrigue and all of his powers of interdict and, and excommunication and papal bulls and things like that to try to manipulate the British system. But in the end, what we got was a constitution. And that constitution meant that the, the, the monarch had to abide by certain rules, and it put the power with the British people instead of with the papacy. And then Wycliffe came along, and he said, you know what? That's exactly right from a biblical reason. And he, he had to give up his, um, his offices because of that, which gave him time to translate the Bible. And before it was all done, he had the church based on the Bible, and the Bible alone and a biblical basis like a constitution. And so what you see now is a, is a gradual move away from Rome. And anyway, let's continue the story. Um, so Martin Luther, October 31, 1517, he puts his 95 theses on the wall. You know, it's really interesting. How do we celebrate that today? Halloween. And why do we celebrate it as Halloween? Hallow means holy, and the Eden is part, is um, uh, the evening. This is the evening before All Saints Day. Satan's birthday. It is Satan's birthday. And basically what you have here is you have the, the Catholic calendar um, is set in such a way 
that Halloween will fall on October 31. And so instead of celebrating um, Reformation Day, we celebrate Halloween. But let's not, let's not be defeatist on all of this. What did Luther do? He put his 95 theses up, and what did he complain about? He complained about the use of indulgences. Um, he talked about the need for grace through repentance, a genuine repentance, not the confessional. He talked about papal blasphemy and papal wealth. That was the point of the 95 Thesis. I don't believe he had any desire to start a Reformation. He didn't know what he was doing. But it snowballed, and God used it, and the Reformation um, was on its way. Um, I'd like to... Um, I'd like to read something from the Bible, if you will. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. I just want to read what God has to say about this time period. Um, when you look at Revelation, um, in chapters 2 and 3, you have the messages, the letters to the seven churches. And each one of these letters refers to a different uh, period in time. And so if we look at the message to Sardis, um, this message is for the time period that we're talking about, the time period of the Reformation. And so looking at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, it says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Ooh, this is a bad time to be. But he says this, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. But listen to this, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I believe that's talking about the, the, the true Christians of the Reformation. He that overcometh the name, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." So this is a time of weakness, but it's also a time where there are those that are not spotted. Now, if you look at the Reformation, there's really two Reformations that are going on at exactly the same time. There's a magisterial Reformation, and there's a radical Reformation. Now, you may not know what's the difference between the two, so let me tell you. The magisterial Reformation... Uh, this includes the likes of Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and all these different people. And basically what you see in this part of the Reformation is a, a movement away from the papacy. And you see a lot of reforms in a lot of different doctrines here. So, so that's, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot going on. But what I want to focus on, the, the thing that makes it different, is magisterial Reformation moves away from the papacy, but has national churches. And so you take the Lutherans, for instance. 
they're the national church, they're a state church of the German people. And Calvin was doing the same thing in Geneva. Uh, Zwingli's also in Switzerland. So that's what's going on. The radical reformation, though, was breaking off from the church-state completely. No more church-state relation at all. So let me try to tell the story of that a little bit. Um, there's a key text that will help us to see what they thought differently of each other. If we go to 2 Thessalonians, we've already read some of this, um, but 2 Thessalonians talks about a falling away. In fact, we've read this, so I'm not going to go ahead and read this, but, but it talks about, about a falling away. We talk about that. The, the word for falling away, do you know what that is in the Greek? It's apostasis or apostasy. So there's this great apostasy. And basically what happened is, is that depending upon your theology, whether you were a magisterial reformer or a radical reformer, you had a different view as to when that falling away took place. Uh, if you were um, Luther or Calvin or someone in the magisterial side, someone who was going to establish a state church, you would see that happening um, and probably uh, Luther, for instance, thought it was Pope Boniface III in 604 AD. And basically, um, that was when the Pope said at one point, I am the head of all the churches. I am the universal bishop. And so Luther looked at that date. Um, Zwingli looked at Hildebrand, which is much later. He was, um, he was the, uh, a guy who was the, the champion of papal supremacy and basically Hildebrand marks the high point for saying to the other kings in Europe, you'll do exactly what I, what I say. And so that's what, that's what Zwingli looked for. But if you were a member of the Radical Reformation, you looked all the way back to the union of the church and state under Constantine. And so for them, the falling away was when the church and state joined together. And I truly believe if you look at Adventist theology, this is the theology that we have. That union of church and state is when you have the formation of the abomination. Um, so who are, the, who are the radical reformers? Who are these people? Um, they go by the term um, Anabaptists. Now, some of you may have heard of Anabaptists. There are some Anabaptists um, around today. I want you to think of them historically, though. One of the things about um, religion and the history of religion in the Christian church when you see it is that the different denominations, they have their high points. They have their important moments. And today, Anabaptists have kind of uh, declined substantially. Um, we see them in the Mennonites, the Hutterites. Um, there's others. Um, but they're very small groups. Um, I, I want you to, to not necessarily think of them that way. Um, we need to think of them as far as what they were back in the Reformation. So, <clears throat> how did they get their name, Anabaptists? <laughs> uh, basically, what's going on here, they, they got their name because they believed in something called believer's baptism. If you were a member of the magisterial uh, church, the magisterial Reformation, and you had a state church, well, then you had infant baptism. And basically, the day you're born, 
Within a few days, you're taken to the church and you're baptized. You're sp there's a sprinkling and the infant baptism takes place. And now you're a member. And therefore, if you go to a place like, like Germany, for instance, under the Lutherans, everyone was a member. And there was another thing that was going on, too, and that is, is that, you know, uh, when Luther started, he was obviously a Catholic monk, and then it became Lutheranism and all these things. Well, they didn't, the, the people of Germany didn't go around and say, well, you know what, I'm not Catholic anymore, I'm going to be a Lutheran, I need to be baptized into Lutheran. No, 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 that didn't happen. You were baptized as a child when you were born, and that was good enough, that counted for everything. But the Anabaptists didn't believe that. Um, they believed... That, that baptism was something that you did when God converted you. When Jesus came into your life, then, then there was a conversion experience that, that happened. And then you wanted to join the true church. And by baptism, that was the way into the true church. And this is precisely the way we think of baptism today. Well, it's really interesting. There's... Um, in January 17, 1525, there was a, uh, a dispute over whether infant baptism or regular baptism should be um, uh, the, the, the rule for the church. It took place in, uh, in Switzerland. Um, Zwingli um, was debating against three of the people that worked with him, uh, Grebel, Manz, and Blaurock. And basically, Grebel had a, uh, a daughter and he didn't want to baptize her. And they were trying to decide, well, what do we do with this? And uh, he said, no, 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 I'm not going to baptize my daughter. Uh, she was like uh, a few months old. He said, we'll wait. And when she grows up, if she wants to join the church, she can be baptized. Well, when it was all done, um, a couple things came out of this. Number one, Zwingli was debating in front of the town council. And it was the town council that made the decision on the baptism. And it was just before that that they'd also debated upon the Mass and whether you have the Mass as Mass and the Eucharist or whether you have communion as an ordinance as, as we have it. And once again, the town council made that decision. It wasn't Zwingli. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the other pastors there. It was the town council. Now, Zwingli said, he said this, he said, if the town council makes the wrong decision, then I'll preach against it. But that was it. And in the reality is, he didn't actually preach it against it. So January 21, 1525, we're talking less than 10 years after the Reformation had gotten started. Um, there was already starting to be splits. And so in the home of Felix Manns, on a snowy, cold night, there's an account of this. It says this, And it came to pass that they were together praying in great agony, for they well knew that they would have to suffer on account of it. After the prayer, George Blaurock stood up and besought Conrad Grebel, for God's sake, to baptize him with true Christian baptism upon his faith and knowledge. And when he knelt down with such a request and desire, Conrad baptized him, since at that time there was no ordained minister to perform such, such work. Blaurock then proceeded to baptize everyone else that was present. This was probably the most revolutionary act of the Reformation. And the reason why I say that is because this truly symbolized a complete break with the Roman papal system. A complete 
break with all church, uh, church and state. October, um, October that same year, Grebel was arrested. He was sentenced to life in prison. He escaped and died almost immediately thereafter. Manns, remember there was uh, Manns, Grebel, in Blaurock. Manns, he was popular with the masses. He lived a noble life. He was an eloquent speaker. He was educated. He was enthusiastic. For that reason, if the Reformation was going to go forward, and by that I mean the magisterial Reformation, Manns had to go. And so, Manns was sentenced to death January 5, 1527. Just two years after the baptism. He was the first Protestant to be martyred by Protestants. Wow. And why? Because he wanted to separate from the state church. It was interesting. He wasn't burned at the stake. In fact, a lot of these guys weren't burnt at the stake. They wanted to have, they executed them by giving them the third baptism. You see, they had the first baptism when they were baptized as a child. The second baptism was the believer's baptism. And the third baptism was one that they wouldn't arise from. So they took him, they bound him, they threw him in the lake. As he was um, being walked down to the lake, his mother shouted out, Remain true to Christ. Soon thereafter, Blaurick, remember he was the third guy that was there, he was martyred by Catholics. So what did the Anabaptists believe in? They believed in believer's baptism. They wanted to have a church of committed believers, not a state church where everybody's a member. They wanted freedom of consciousness. And one other thing they stood for, they didn't believe in predestination. What was their mission? What was their purpose? These Anabaptists were amazing people. <laughs> they believed, and when you think about what they, were, what they were standing for, they truly believed that they stood in exactly the same position of the apostles. And I believe they did. Europe was in such darkness, they needed this message. And so when they looked at the Great Commission, they looked at it just as if it was being freshly given to them that day. And so they would go across Europe preaching, baptizing, and teaching, gathering a church out of all nations, because it wasn't a national church anymore, right? They could go to all nations because they were having a church of true believers. They believed that the church militant was unable to serve two masters. And this is one of the things that kept getting them into trouble and, uh, for a long time. And they believed that a Christian could only weld the sword of Christ, which is the word. And so they were pacifists. They wouldn't bear arms. They believed that the Lord's Supper, they didn't believe in the Mass. They believed the Lord's Supper was a memorial. It was a reminder of the cross and a reminder of Christ's promise return. 
And so they caused an incredible problem. Um, during the reign of Queen Mary in, um, in England, she was known as Bloody Mary, um, it was thought that perhaps up to 80% of the people that she sent to the stake were Anabaptists. Meanwhile, um, the Catholic Church, and to some extent, sadly, the Reformation churches were adopting this philosophy. Here's their philosophy. It said this. This is by a, uh, a Catholic lawyer living at the time. If a lay person believes incorrectly, he is be re- to be returned to the faith by instruction. And if he refuses to believe, but adheres instead to his wicked error, then he shall be condemned as a heretic and burned. But in that event, lay justice must come to the aid of the Holy Church. For when anyone is condemned as a heretic by the examination conducted by the Holy Church, then the Holy Church must leave him to lay justice. And the lay justice must then burn him, seeing that the spiritual justice ought not put anyone to death. And so there you see this union of church and state where the church makes the determination, but the state performs the execution. And we, we hopefully all know um, there's another statement that they would make because a lot of times they would make deals with people, like come and talk to us. And then before it was all done, that person was bound and burned. And the reason why is because they believed faith is not to be kept with heretics. So there's one more martyr I'd like to talk about right now. His name is Michael Servetus. Have any of you heard of Michael Servetus? I see a few people here. Any doctors here, Michael Servetus? Any doctors at all? Shucks. I like to ask this question. I was just talking to someone who's taking a... uh, a fellowship in pulmonary, and I said, have you heard of Michael Servetus? And she's all like, no. Michael Servetus, he was a theologian, a physician, a cartographer, a mathematician, an astronomer, a meteorologist. He knew the biblical languages, but check this out. He was the first European to describe pulmonary circulation. Well, he started out as a Catholic and a Catholic monk, And he kept moving, and as the Reformation moved, he moved right along with it. He became a Protestant. Um, Eventually, he became an Anabaptist, and he believed in believers' baptism. Um, He disputed with Calvin on this by letter. They went back and forth a lot. And he was pretty, you know, one of the things that that marks this era, and you'll see uh, in my final presentation, I'll I'll read you a little something. They weren't exactly politically correct, and they're going back and forth with each other. Well, so by 19, I mean, excuse me, by 1546, Calvin, in a letter to Farrell, Farrell's another one of the great reformers, said that he would kill Servetus if he had the opportunity. He had had it with him. Well... Servetus wrote a lot of his stuff in books, and they got published, and it went around Europe. And so he got to be kind of well-known. And Calvin was really upset about him. And eventually, at some point, Calvin actually figured out where he was and where he was hiding. And he knew who the printer was that was printing the book. And this was all in France. At the time, the French Inquisition, the Catholic French Inquisition, was going in full force. And so Calvin says, 
yeah, I'm going to send a letter to the French Inquisitor. And he does. And he tells him where Servetus is. Well, Servetus is captured, but he escapes. And so he gets away. So, and that's in 1553. Well, Servetus made a mistake. Um, he disguised himself, and he was on his way to another European country. I can't remember where. It was someplace in the east. And he passed through Geneva on his way. And he was found out there. And so Servetus was found there. Calvin, he's, you know, the, the, uh, the leader of the Reformation in Geneva, and he finds him there. And they had a trial for him. And it was an interesting thing. Calvin's biggest um, detractors in Geneva was a party called the Libertines. And the Libertines wanted a much more open, free, you've heard the, 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 the term libertine, you know, that's someone who doesn't want to obey rules and everything. And Calvin was very much into rules. Well, when Servetus came through there, they were all like, yeah, we, we'd like to get rid of him too. And so Calvin got the libertine judges to, 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 to hold court. And then uh, he sent his people to testify against him. And so, um, sad to say, um, he was found guilty of being a heretic, and Servetus was burned. Servetus is interesting because another thing about him is that he was the only person that we know of anyway that was burned in effigy because the Catholic Inquisition burned him in effigy and then to be burned in reality by the Protestant. Well, Servetus was well known, and because of this, there was a big shock that went through Europe. Everybody was shocked that this would happen. How could this possibly happen? How could you burn such an important guy? I mean, this guy was really important. And, and where is the hypocrisy? I mean, look at the hypocrisy in all of this. And so this actually turned out to be a very electrifying event for Europe. And this is when Europe said, maybe we need to think about religious tolerance and freedom of conscience. Calvin responded to that, and this is what he said. Whoever shall maintain that wrong is done to heretics and blasphemers in punishing them makes himself an accomplice in their crime and guilty as they are. There is no question here of man's authority. It is God who speaks, and clear it is what law he will have kept in the church, even to the end of the world. So Calvin really thought he'd done the right thing and that God was with him. Wherefore does he demand of us so extreme severity, if not to show us that due honor is not paid him? So long as we set not his service above every human consideration, so that we spare not kin nor blood of any, and forget all humanity when the matter is to combat for his glory. Wow. That is as papal. Castillo, Castillo was, a, was a priest who worked with Calvin, um, a fellow reformer there, a, a lesser individual. He didn't like this. And he voluntarily defrocked himself. He said a bunch of things here. He said, when Servetus fought with reasons and writings, he should have been repulsed by reasons and writings. He also said this, a heretic, won't rec a heretic that won't recant, he said, is telling the truth because he's saying what he believes. And it's for telling the truth that he is burned. 
He said this, we can live together peacefully only when we control our intolerance. Even though there will always be differences of opinion from time to time, we can at any rate come to general understandings, can love one another, and can enter into the bonds of peace pending the day when we shall attain unity of faith. So, with all of these martyrs, you actually see the argument moving forward. And religious liberty is moving forward. But what a mess you had in Europe. What a mess. And so, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 12. I love these texts. Revelation 12, we're going to America. Guess which verses we're going to look at. How about verse 14? And to, the women were, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, unto her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. The wilderness where there's not people. You know, in Europe they fled to the Alps. Places long away. The Waldenses were there. But listen in verse 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth held to the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And I really believe that's referring to coming to America. So Columbus sailed in 1492. It's interesting that that happened right before the Reformation. God was getting the world ready for this. He had a plan. In 1607, the Virginia colony was founded. Uh, as the first British colony. Uh, it was founded for uh, commercial reasons. In 1620, the Mayflower left England. And it left with a group of pilgrims on it. Now, these pilgrims were what we call separatists. They weren't, they weren't Anabaptists, but they were separatists. And they had many of the same attitudes of, of the Anabaptists that we've been talking about. But basically, they had a problem with the Church of England. Now, let's think about that for a second as we've gone through our story. Magna Carta creates the Church of England as its own separate thing. But these separatists come along and they say, well, we need to be separate from the Church of England. So we're making that step again, Right? So they're on their way to Virginia. They make a deal that they can come and settle in Virginia. But they get blown off course, and they wind up in Massachusetts. And from that, we get the, um, the Mayflower Compact, which is something that they kind of had to do at the last minute. But it's interesting because they're, they're, they're holding to the notion of constitutionalism. It's the same idea that goes forth from Magna Carta. Now, the pilgrims came over. They weren't prepared to be on their own. They were planning to go to Virginia. So this was kind of a last-minute deal. And it was interesting because at the very first, they were religious liberty as well. But there was a lot of pressure from England, and all of a sudden they needed to act like true colony, uh, colonists. And so they decided to officially adopt a state church, which was their separatist church. Um, but the pilgrims were small. There was only 102 of them. Um, their numbers never got higher than about 300. 
And so the big deal that happened in the United States as far as religion and immigration and everything like that is 1628. In 1628, the Puritans come over, and they come to Massachusetts as well. Now, the Puritans are interesting. Um, We have to remember that at the time they came over, every state had a church state. And by that, I mean every country in Europe. They believed in religious liberty, though, and they said a lot about it, but this is their version of religious liberty. Religious liberty was the freedom to follow the dictates of God, as defined by the church. The freedom to do that which is good, just, and honest, as defined by the church. So the Puritans, they were subject to the state church. They had that same problem going on. Um, And sadly, they didn't believe in any uh, diversity of opinion. I'd just like to tell you a little bit what life was like for the Puritans. Um, It just blows me away. I just want to express this. uh, If if you had a, a fight going on with your wife, the court, you could take... You could take her to court. And the court would decide if she was scolding you too much. Or maybe you weren't living with her anymore, and the court could order you to, to, to move back in. They had something that they called holy watching. And everyone was to watch everyone else inside the colony to be sure that everyone was going with the rules. Um, it's amazing the kinds of things. <clears throat> they wanted to base their laws on the Bible. And so you could actually look at their laws and a rebellious child could be put to death because they found a text like that in the Old Testament. But the best thing about that was is that it never happened. Um, it was a crime to court a girl without her parents' approval. And if they wouldn't give their approval, you could go to a judge and get approval. <laughs> it was a crime for the parents not to allow their children to marry. And the parents were supposed to help secure a, um, a, uh, a marriage for their children. Um, parents were to see to it that their kids worked. You know, Napoleon had this to say, and I really believe the Puritans um, were on, now Napoleon's later, obviously, but, but I think they were really on the same page. This is what Napoleon says. Make the family responsible to its head and the head to me, and I will keep order in France. This was definitely... They're thinking. They controlled every, every aspect of life. Wages and prices were fixed. They couldn't allow exports. Um, you could be impressed. In other words, basically taken slave for a period of time if they needed farm labor. Um, idleness was pu- punished. Um, they had limits on how much money you could spend on food because they didn't want people having a lavish uh, amount of food, and they'd have special, special uh, exceptions for holidays. Um, Strangers were denied to settle. You had to have permission to get there. Now, I want to explain this so you can kind of get a feeling for the times. What they were doing was no different than what was going on in England. Maybe a little more strict because they were trying to be Puritans and they were you know, trying to purify the church, but it's the same basic thing. And so, so you could see the same thing in Europe. Do you remember what Plato said? He said all religion was public, and that if anyone was caught having private religion, well, then they should be, have to bring that to the public realm. I believe that this, that we're seeing the, the hangover from that kind of thinking, that kind of thinking that, that was in Plato's day, 
brought in through the papacy and, and here to the Puritanism. Um, <clears throat> there was Roger Ludlow. He was the founder, he was uh, the lawyer for the founders of Massachusetts and Connecticut. And there came a time when the Massachusetts folks said they were going to elect a governor. He said, if the people elect their governor, then we should have no government, but every man might do what he pleased. He saw just the election of someone as the abolition of government. John Cotton, who was a rival of Roger Williams, said this, if the peoples be governors, who shall be governed? As for monarchy and aristocracy, they are both of them clearly approved and directed in Scripture. So this is the picture that we have in early America. But praise the Lord, it didn't last long. <laughs> Roger Williams. This guy is amazing. As I was studying all this, and, and, and just, just to reread Roger Williams was like a breath of fresh air. I read Roger Williams like, man, I agree with this guy. And yeah, that's the way I'd say it. Oh, wow, that's where that idea came from. He's a good guy. He was born in London in 1603, studied to be a priest, left the Anglican church to become a Puritan, and in 1631, he immigrated to Boston. He was a separatist. He didn't want to be a part of a church state. And this is what he did. He denied that the magistrates had any authority in religious matters. He came up with another idea that I firmly believe in. It's called the doctrine of two tables. And basically what it says is, is that the Ten Commandments are on two tables. There's the first four on one table and the last six on the second table. And the first four govern our relationship with God, and the last six govern our relationship with man. Every good government on earth has to legislate the last six. It just has to. But no government on earth has any right to legislate the first four. And we got that from Roger Williams. Well, the magistrates... And Massachusetts couldn't deal with that. I mean, you can imagine, <laughs> he's, 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 he's really pushing it there. And so in winter, in 1636, they held a trial and they said, you need to leave. But they said, look, if you'll just desist, keep your mouth shut, you can stay till spring. And so he went home and he couldn't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> and so he was ordered exiled immediately. And you have a famous story of him going to Plymouth and having to spend the winter with the Indians. The Indians saved his life. So in 1636, he founded Rhode Island. And in 1663, he got permission to found Rhode Island. <laughs> um, Rhode Island was open to Anabaptists, to Quakers, and to other nonconformists. It was known as kind of the ragtag place to be in the New World. But there was complete religious liberty and probably more religious liberty there than we even have in some states today. Um, when he was requesting the charter in 1663, um, he said this. Um, they were writing a letter to the, to, the, to the crown. It says this, Much on their hearts to hold forth a lively experiment that a flourishing civil state may be best maintained with full liberty in religious concernments. Sorry about the hard English, but basically what he's saying is, hey, we want to try an experiment 
And we think that we can live here in full liberty with no religious laws. So, the, the charter was written and the king signed it, and this is what it said. No person within said colony shall be in any wise molested, punished, disquieted, or called in question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion and do not actually disturb the civil peace of our said colony. You can believe whatever you want. And as long as you don't actually disturb the peace, that's fine. I want to I read you just a few things that Roger Williams wrote. He was the first guy to say that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. That's probably the most important thing we've got that he said. But going on, there's other beautiful things here. He said, the sovereign power of all civil authority is founded in the consent of the people. He was the guy that talked about consent. There's a corollary to that. If all of the civil power is by consent of the people, then any religious power would also have to be by consent of the people. But it is impossible to consent to religious power. You can't, you can't consent to have someone else make your religious decisions for you. Can you? No. Religion has to, by definition, between, has to be between you and God. And so, for that reason, he said this, no civil state or country can be truly called Christian. It's impossible, although Christians be in it. Why? Because you can't give that part of who you are to the consent. So you can't have a Christian nation. The nation has to be independent of all things religious even if the nation is made up entirely of Christian people. Now you see the beauty in this. It's the Christian principle. He learned this from his study and reading of the Bible, and it's the Christian principle that creates a nation that isn't technically Christian. This will become very important, and that, this concept you need to know. This is going to be critically important in the future in our country. As we move towards religious legislation, there's going to be a call to us being a Christian nation. But that is impossible. It cannot happen. He talked about which kings to look at um, in the Old Testament. I think this is kind of interesting. He said, you can't use the covenant kings of Israel as, as proper models because they have a special relationship with God, a theocracy. But you could use good covenant kings like Artaxerxes in, in Ezra 7. Uh, that's a model. Or Nebuchadnezzar's kind of a moral tale. Um, anyway, he said this, the enforcement of uniformity of religion confounds the civil and the religious denies the principle of Christianity and civility, and that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. When he said this about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, he was actually echoing the arguments that the Anabaptists made about keeping the state out of religion, because they said that you deny Christ by forcing someone to have a religious prin uh, a principle of any kind, because Christ didn't come 
as, um, as someone to coerce people. He came to invite people. He said this, the magistrate might not punish the breach of the Sabbath as it was a breach of the first table. He said this, toleration for paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciousness and worships. He said we should tolerate all of these things. Um, talked about the parable of the tares and how no one is to judge, not even on the pagans or the heretics, but God is the judge. And how Paul's writings explain how to use the word as the sword of truth. He also said that there was no right to levy church taxes. You see, everything was based on church taxes. Another interesting thing that's a fairly little-known fact, John Locke, I don't know how many of you are political scientists or not, but John Locke was a political scientist who was influential in America, and we give him a lot of credit for using his theories for, for separation of church and state and personal liberty that we have in our country. But he got these ideas from Roger Williams. The sad thing is Roger Williams probably marks um, the high point of religious liberty, um, certainly in, in Rhode Island at the time, because by 762, Rhode Island um, was prohibiting Jews from entering into the colony. So it didn't last forever. Um, so you got Roger Williams is coming along, and he's doing a, a good thing. Um, <clears throat> he's still got the Puritans that are, are acting the way um, they are. They didn't change just because Roger Williams care. But we're starting to get now down to the revolution. And how does that happen? What does that all mean? Well, first of all, the Puritans, you can kind of see, they're kind of rigid people, and, and they kind of think, you know, we got we to have everything encompassed and everything should be embraced by law. Um, how are you going to convince them to rebel against the king? Well, it's interesting. We should look at their political philosophy. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't dummies. They did read their Bible. And this is what they believed, that God created the covenant between ruler and subject and church. Very communal way of thinking. But they believed that that covenant was conditional. And therefore, the covenant was also by consent. And if the king violated the divine contract, then the people could withdraw their consent. And so that's how you talk a Puritan into rebellion. Um, something else going on. Not everybody's Puritan. They don't all necessarily see that, that thing going on. And remember, we, the, you know, we still got that problem where the Puritans have that kind of public religion and everybody's on the, the, same, the same page together and, and everything. And, and it really was in their psyche. That's why you have things like the scarlet letter. They really did do stuff like that, where if you were caught for adultery, you had to have papers and, and, and different things like that um, um, that you would display on yourself when you walked around town. The Puritans were quick to excommunicate people. But I also think that we have a misconception of the Puritans. I think today we kind of go like, oh, these people are terrible, uh, judgmental, and all this other kind of stuff. 
Yes, in some ways, but they were very quick to pardon. And if you look at their books, they would excommunicate people from this. But you'd see, oh, man, they excommunicated them this month, and then they excommunicated a few more months later, and a few more months later, and, and they would forgive. The Puritans were actually very uh, forgiving. But something came along that had to change the way people thought. And so in 1730, there was a big movement called the Great Awakening. It's a religious movement. You've heard of Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. These are the kind of guys that were preaching. These are the big movers in the Great Awakening. And what were they? They were itinerant preachers. So they go from place to place to place to place preaching, and they're preaching revival. Now, being an itinerant preacher was a radical thing to do because, because before this, you were supposed to go and have a church, and you'd get a license to preach in that church, and if you didn't have a church, you couldn't preach in it. And so these guys were getting into trouble. Um, there, was, there was a lot of trouble with this kind of stuff. Um, When they preached, they also preached an emotional message. It wasn't enough to have mere assent. You see, if you looked at, at what was going on with the church before, in its most magisterial state, you were, um, if, if you were a German and you were born in the right part of the country, you were a Lutheran. If you're born in the wrong part of the country, you were a Catholic. You didn't have to have anything other than just being born to be there. If you were going to be a Puritan, you needed to to have an intellectual assent, and then you were part of the community, and you were just a part of the community, and you just had an intellectual assent to it all. But if the Great Awakening came along and said, you have to have a choice, you have to choose, and there's this, this, this call, and it's much like the Anabaptists with the believer's baptism, right? So you can see how things are moving forward. And in the process of doing that, um, you increase individualism. If you will, turn with me to Ezekiel 14.14. 14. It says this, Those, These three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. They should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. In other words, Noah and Daniel and Job, by their righteousness, can't save anybody else. It's a personal thing. And that's what's going on during the Great Awakening. Another thing that's going on, too, is that God's using ordinary people. Because you don't have to have this fancy license, ordinary people would go around and preach. We're moving away from that elite system. So all of this coalesce. You can convince the Puritans on the one hand, and you can also see the regular American person is becoming this individual who is now throwing off the crown, throwing off monarchy. All of these liberties, they're all because of religion. Now, <clears throat> we've called our series, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. It's got a good ring to it, doesn't it? That was instrumental in the course of the revolution. I was spoken by Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was an attorney, and he was known, and he became interested in religious liberty because he would go around, and there were these Baptist ministers who were preaching without licenses, 
And he was defending him. And that's how he got involved in this whole thing. Um, anyway. So, Declaration of Independence comes, talks about individualism, and talks about consent to the governed. And then, after that, it takes a little time. And basically, in 1789, we get the Constitution. So what's going on? Well, in 1774, all but three of the colonies had established churches, and they were all acting to some degree or another like the Puritans were in Massachusetts. Between 1774 and 1789, three big states, Virginia, New York, and New Jersey, got rid of, got rid of um, um, uh, the, the established church. And in 1789, we get the U.S. Constitution. Now, that's only six of them, right? We got six of the colonies, and there's 13. Why did we get the First Amendment in there that says, um, you know, freedom of, of religion if everybody's got this established church? Well, here's the thing. The Constitution only governed the federal government. And when they passed that, they knew that the, church, that the states had that, and they weren't going to fight that fight. Right now, we're going to fight the crown. And so it did not extend religious liberty to anybody in the, in the states. But by 1789, uh, Virginia had it. They were the first of the big states to go. And what went during their arguments were the arguments that covered just about everybody. It's why most of the other states went. Madison, Jefferson, Patrick Henry, these were the big guys. And basically what it came down to they were arguing about whether the state should pay for um, chaplains on the state's dime. And Jefferson and Madison said, no way. And in the process, they got rid of the whole thing. And so the Constitution got us something called republicanism. And loosely defined, republicanism is democratic ideals, constitutionalism, Separation of church and state, separation of powers, but here's a big one that we forget so much. Moral virtue of citizenry. Moral virtue of citizenry. By 1797, we had the Treaty of Tripoli. And there, um, we, we were making an agreement um, with the government in Tripoli. And this is what we said about ourselves. As the government of the United States of America is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion. Remember what Roger Williams said? Exactly. These guys knew that. As it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen, this is an old way of saying Muslim, and as the said states never entered into any war or active hostility against any Mohammedan nation, or Muhammad, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. So we could get along, but we are not a Christian nation. So the final disestablishment happened in Massachusetts in 1833. And some of you are asking, like, when did we get religious liberty? Well, in 1833 was the first time the entire United States could say disestablishment was gone. But even then, we didn't truly have full religious liberty. And there's little vestiges laying around still today in the form of uh, Sunday blue laws and things like that. We're not to the high point that Roger Williams had. So it's interesting 
to see how this actually kind of fell apart for the, uh, for the established church. Um, the whole thing in Massachusetts, is it, it really is kind of interesting. I want to explain it. Basically, in Massachusetts, if you wanted to start a new town, you could. You had to go get permission, and then everybody had to build their house within five miles of a meeting house. You had to build a meeting house, and in the meeting house, you had to staff it with a pastor and somebody to teach the kids, and they had to teach the kids the catechumen, the, 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 the catechism. Well, okay, so let's say you wanted to start a town, you're going to have a bunch of Baptists there. Well, you could do the whole thing Baptist. Let's say you're going to be Anglican, you do the whole thing Anglican. Well, and then things started to grow, and you started to remodel and all this other kind of stuff, so then they'd levy a tax so that you could pay for that, for that place to take care of it, right? Well, then all of a sudden, you'd start to shop denominations to figure out which one had the lowest tax. And it ended up between that and the Great Awakening, everybody was Baptist. Well, okay... <laughs> So it turned into a big fight, and, and, and pretty soon then um, the, the congregation would split, and they were splitting, and they were angry with each other, and they wanted to know who owned it. And in this particular case, it was Unitarians versus Trinitarians. And the Unitarians were the judges, and the Trinitarians were the established church, and the, the judges were Unitarians, and they took it. And, oh, man, that made a big thing. And everyone's like, you know what, we've had plenty of this. But um, anyway, I want to I read something. Um, this is from Lyman Beecher. Um, this is actually talking about it in Connecticut in 1818. Before disestablishment, he said this. So the democracy as it rose included nearly all the minor sects, sects, S-E-C-T-S, besides the Sabbath breakers, rum-selling, tippling folk, infidels, and rough scuff generally, and made dead set at us as of the standing order. So these are the people he sees wanting to take, take the church out. But afterwards, this is what happens. He wasn't expecting to lose it right then. And afterwards, he says this, For several days I suffered what no tongue can tell for the best thing that ever happened in the state of Connecticut. It cut the churches loose from dependence on state support. It threw them wholly on their own resources and on God. They say ministers have lost their influence. The fact is they've gained. By voluntary efforts, societies, missions, and revivals, they exert a deeper influence than ever they could by cues and shoe buckles and cocked hats and golden-headed canes. He was disestablished and it was the best thing that ever happened. So how did we get religious liberty here? It didn't really come down. You know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government until 1868. In 1868, after the Civil War, to give rights to the slaves, we passed the 14th Amendment. And this is what it says. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within his jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. And they took that to mean all the laws, the ones that uh, applied to the federal government and the ones that applied to the states, and that got us, got us all the, the right for freedom of religion. Eighteen sixty-eight. Um, running out of time here. There's a few other things I want to talk about, but, but I just want to give you some food for thought and some things that we'll talk about in the next presentation. 
you have to understand what are the components of religious liberty. And I define them four ways. One is disestablishment of the church. We got that in 1833. We had it in many states long before that. Religious removal of religious disabilities for office holders. We didn't take time to talk about that, but the U.S. Constitution gave us that, and in 68 we got it. And basically what the Constitution says is that if you want to hold office in the United States, no one can require you to take a religious oath. You know when the last oath disappeared in this country? 1961. Maryland was doing it until 1961 when the Supreme Court said, no, the, the, uh, the Bill of Rights applies in that respect, too. Um, but here's some other things that we have to worry about. Decriminalization of religious activities. I mean, we can get rid of the church, the, the, the state church, and we can get rid of religious disabilities, but we've got to make it legal for you to practice your religion. This is going to be a perpetual problem. It has to, by definition, because new religions come up all the time with new things that they want to do. And another thing that's just kind of on the edge that's new, and that's the removal of religious disabilities. In other words, um, can I work for you? Can, can you tell me I can't work for you because of my religion? It's religious discrimination in the workplace is the most common area. So these are the things that we have to watch out for. There's more to be done in the area of religious liberty. When you're talking about America, you're talking about the early days. How can you not talk about Alexis de Tocqueville? He was a French historian, came over to the United States from France to see how we were doing it in 1831. He wanted to go back to France to explain how America was getting along because France was going through its own changes at that time towards democracy. And he made this observation about America. He said this, the religious atmosphere of the country was the first thing that struck me on my arrival in the United States. He was astonished because in Europe, religion and freedom marched in opposite directions. That's the story of the French Revolution, is religion and freedom going in opposite directions. He found that all Americans thought that the quiet sway of religion over their country was because of the complete separation of church and state. What a beautiful observation. In Revelation 13, 11 describes this. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spake as a dragon. We're in this little tiny phase of history. There's been 6,000 years of history in just this little tiny phase when we've had religious liberty. That's when we've spoken as a lamb. Someday we'll speak as a dragon. I want to read this. This is from Ellen White. It says, The lamb-like horns indicate youth, innocence, and gentleness, fitly representing the character of the United States when presented to the prophet is coming up in 1798. Among the Christian exiles who first fled to America and sought an asylum from royal oppression and priestly intolerance were many who determined to establish a government upon the broad foundation of civil and religious liberty. Their views found place in the Declaration of Independence, which sets forth the great truth that all men are created equal and endowed with, un with the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the Constitution guarantees to the people the right of self-government, providing the representatives elected by the popular vote shall enact and, and administer the laws. 
Freedom of religious faith was also guaranteed, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Republicanism, which is what we have here, and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. The oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of the earth. John Turner at the Massachusetts Ratifying Constitution, where they ratified the U.S. Constitution, said this, Without the prevalence of Christian piety and morals, the best Republican Constitution can never save us from slavery and ruin. And John Adams, writing to his wife, said this, Statesmen may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can, upon which freedom can securely stand. Oh, we live in an important time, and we are so blessed by the freedoms that we have. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. I'd like to close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the religious liberty, the freedoms that we have here in this country. Lord, I pray that we would take these seriously and let us make good use of the time for your glory. Lord, please go with us as we continue um, here at GYC. Please bless this conference. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.